Is ambition something Christians can have? What was Jesus ambitious for? What's the relationship between ambition and humility? Does our excellence always mean being better than others? And how does prayer shape our ambition? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to the Right Reverend Dr. Emma Einson. Emma is the Bishop of Penrith in the Diocese of Carlisle, and she was previously Principal of Trinity College, Bristol. And our question today is, is there a theology of ambition? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Ryanson, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you, Philip. It's great to be here with you. Emma, your current role is Bishop of Penrith, but tell us a little bit about the different roles and how God has called you, I guess, both to this role, but the things that you did before then. That's a really good question. I sometimes wonder how I've got to where I am now, really. I mean, talking about roles, I think my roles as wife and mother are as significant to me, if not more, than a Bishop of Penrith. Mm. I've was ordained when I was 30 and had a young child and another one on the way. In fact, I was pregnant when I was ordained. And so that sense of juggling various vocations, motherhood, academic work, priestly ministry, have all been part of my story. So through a background in academic work, in various chaplaincy roles, diocesan roles, parish roles and theological education, then one year ago became Bishop of Penrith. Now, when you did your PhD, I know that was an area around power and authority in the language of worship in particular. More recently, you've written about, I guess, ambition, power in Christian ministry and leadership. Mm. Can you give us a sense about if there was a journey between the first and the second and what that kind of looked like? There definitely was. I've always been fascinated with language. So my PhD was in sociolinguistics. I was really trying to lift the lid on worship and look at how does the words we use, what does that say about the power dynamics in a congregation? So I did an analysis of eight different denominations and looking at what authority looks like in those denominations. So I think that sense of lifting the lid on what we do is something that has stayed with me, and particularly through language. What kind of language do we use? Uh, What kind of messages do we give about who we are as the church? So that's really been the journey. So some of my recent work on ambition I'm still fascinated with linguistics, so if you read the book, you'll know that I look at the question of where does the word ambition come from, where does the word success come from, what's the etymology of that. But really that sense of being able to name some elephants, to think, well, what do we do in the church that we don't often talk about, what are the power dynamics between that, um, that's what's really fascinating to me. So I really enjoyed the book and how you explored ambition from a whole range of angles. And it'd be great to kind of talk that through in this episode. Tell us a little bit about ambition from first Mm. principles. It might be where the word comes from. It might be how the word's treated in the Bible, where it does happen. Give us a sense about where we're starting this debate from. Okay, so what I set out to do really was to redeem the word ambition and redeem the concept of ambition. So Ambition is not really something that Christians talk about very much. I think it's considered a sort of dirty word. You know, we're meant to be concerned with vocation and calling, and we're not meant to get our hands grubby with things like ambition. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized that 
whilst we might not use the word, ambition is actually a really important concept in scripture. So there are only a few places where the word ambition actually comes in scripture. In the New Testament, I think we're told to be ambitious for three things. And that is to proclaim the good news, to please God, and to live a quiet life, mind our own business and work with our hands. And that's from 1 Thessalonians. So those are are kind of fairly achievable ambitions, I would say. (laughs) I especially like the mind your own business part of it. That's 1 Thessalonians. But when you move away from looking at the specific words for ambition, but you look at the concept of ambition. So I think when God says to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, fill the earth and subdue it, that is an ambitious task. (laughs) You know, that's not something you're going to do overnight. And of course, we know that Adam and Eve get that wrong and they use their own sense-driven personal ambition to walk away from the ways of God and to achieve their own success, if you like, which of course goes horribly wrong. So there is a real story of ambition that you can thread through the Bible. The story of Joseph is a real challenge of the idea that ideas of success and ambition that we might have. You know, he starts off from failure and achieves great success, but the, the thing for him is keeping God at the centre of everything that he does and following God. So what I try to explore really is what is the motivation for ambition? If we're going to be made in God's image to achieve things, you know, to get stuff done on earth, then how do we make sure that we're doing that from the right principles and with the right motivation? So, Give me an example, therefore, of what good motivation might look like and what bad motivation look like. If you say it's not the ambition mm. that's a problem, but it's the heart issue going on. Flesh out for me what those two different perspectives might look like on the ground. I think it's all to do with what you desire. So God made us people of desire. So the kind of typical Augustinian concept, which is we are people who desire things and we can either desire sin or we can desire God. You know, Augustine's prayer, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So that sense that as human beings, we desire things. And so the question for me is, what is the telos or the kind of end point of our desire? And if it's focused... Telos is the Greek for It's the Greek the word goal, for the goal, for, for the, the, goal, the yeah. thing you're aiming for, for the end point. So if our end point is wanting to see God's kingdom come on earth, then our desires need to be shaped and moved in that direction. And so we will see ambition slightly differently to the way that it's seen in the world. So you ask me for examples. I mean, I guess the ultimate example, one of the questions I ask really is, was Jesus ambitious? And I think his life is the place where we see what it really means to be ambitious in the right way. So was he ambitious? I mean, yes. He set out to save the whole of humankind from sin and hell and destruction. And he achieved the greatest victory that uh, ever there was. And he was wholehearted. He was passionate. You know, he only saw what he saw his father doing, only did what he saw his father doing. And he went for it, you know. But did he do it in the way that we might want to achieve success? No, probably not. He wasn't very good at networking. You know, he hung out with the wrong people, with tax collectors and prostitutes. He didn't, you know, when he fed the 5,000 He didn't stay around and make a marketing campaign out of it. He fled up a mountain. He didn't modify his teaching in response to customer feedback uh, when when he was told it was too difficult. So he did all the wrong things. And his life ended in failure on a cross. And yet out of that failure, God brought the greatest success 
And if you could see me, I, I tend to wave my hands about and do the inverted commas success thing, but you can't see that because it's a podcast. But he achieved the greatest success that there ever has been in the entire history of humankind. So Jesus is an interesting case study, I think, in ambition. So we can see in Jesus this huge ambition for the kingdom and I guess Luke chapter four and the Nazareth, what's called the Nazareth Manifesto, this sense of the living mm. with the kingdom coming into reality before his his eyes, that sense of ambition. But that also ambition involved him engaging in a very different way with power and particularly the powers of the day. You talked about that ended up on the cross, that journey down mm. from Galilee, down the Jericho Valley and then up up to Jerusalem. Was it ambition that kept him going on that road, do you think, the road on the way of the cross? Yes, I think it was, but it's not personal ambition. You know, mm. it's not status. It's not mm. furthering his own ends. It's furthering the ends of God the Father, the, the task he has given him to do. And, you know, I often think about the Beatitudes, where I think Jesus describes what it looks like to live as a citizen of that kingdom. You know, so here is my ambition, Luke 4. This is how we're going to live in that Matthew new five, community. Yeah. But you look at the sort of things that he describes there, you know, those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, are meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, are merciful, pure in heart, the peacemakers and the persecuted. You know, if I was coming up with a top eight list of qualities for ambitious disciples, I'm not sure that's where I would start. But Jesus turns it on its head and says, look, if you live like this, then you will be citizens of my kingdom. This is what we're aiming for. So he does turn ambition on on its head. But I think I want to say that it's not the opposite of ambi being wrongly ambitious is not to be not ambitious, but to be ambitious for the right things. And you've described kind of putting that ambition in a much bigger picture. So it's never mm -hmm. kind of just personal ambition, but within this mm -hmm. scope of God's story and being ambitious for God's story. If we can be ambitious within God's story, how does that connect with humility? We're often told that humility is the kind of key virtue. And those of us in leadership roles kind of are often challenged about that. Can humility and ambition live together in the same human heart? And if so, how? I think humility and ambition must live together in the same human heart. In fact, I would say the more ambitious you are, and from henceforth, I'm going to mean that in the gospel-centered yeah. way of talking about ambition. So ambitious for God rather than for personal status the more we must seek humility. It's interesting that in the New Testament, ambition is usually something, humility rather, is something that you do for yourself. So Jesus talks a lot about humbling yourself. You know, whoever humbles mm. themselves, mm. it's usually reflexive. It's usually that sense of, there is a sense of agency in being humble. So it's I think choice, that it is, yeah, yeah. That I think that it is within our power to try and be more humble. I mean, not in the kind of, was it Donald Trump who said, I'm actually the most humble person in the world? You know, not in that sort of sense of bragging about humility. I think it was Tim Keller who said, humility is shy. As soon as you look at it, it leaves. You know, there is that sense of you never can quite get a handle on what humility is. But yes, I think the more ambitious we are, the more we need to be doing that work of paying attention to character mm. and to the internal life and to... Uh, humbling ourselves. And so ambition is within God's perspective. Humility is about a personal and reflective perspective on your own human heart. Yeah, there's a great, one of the characters that's in the New Testament that's really a, a kind of totem for me of this is, or an anti-totem, is Diotrephes in Third John. Just remind us, Emma. So Diotrephes, we know very little about him, but 
John says he describes him as Diotrephes who likes to put himself first. And I think he stands as a kind of warning for leaders particularly. You know, if we are going to seek the way of God, let us not be like Diotrephes who likes to put himself first. Let's be those who who like to prefer others to ourselves. You've kind of fleshed out what it means to be ambitious for God's kingdom, but also the requirement for personal reflective humility as a result. One of the challenges we find is that the church is increasingly trying to inhabit a missionary narrative, a missionary agenda that is believing that God wants to bring growth. And that carries with it, I know we both experience the risk that the ambition for growth can can lead to kind of pride. I know you write about this in the book. What's the right way of thinking about this in terms of measuring the growth that takes place and perhaps what might be some of the less helpful ways? I, can we be ambitious for growth in a good way? Uh, or what's it mean to do it in a bad way? I think we should be ambitious for growth. Um, one of the things I'm really keen not to say in the book is well, it's okay, you know, we should all just sit down and have a cup of tea and it doesn't really matter if the church grows or not because I don't think that's how the Bible sees the kingdom. I think all of the metaphors for the kingdom are about growth and we want to see the church grow, not because we want to see our own success, but because we want to see women, men and children coming to know the love of Christ one by one by one. Somebody said once, numbers matter because people matter. So I am not somebody who will say, just stop counting. We don't need to measure anything. We just need to exist in this wonderful state of being. Because I think we do, we do need to count stuff. The Bible is full of counting. You know, it's quite obsessed with it, actually. Everything is counted mm. in the Bible. Tribes, people, feeding 5,000 um, soldiers, armies censuses you know if you look right through the bible everything is counted which is why it's really interesting that in revelation at the end of time what is described is a crowd that is so big that no one can count it Mm. and it's like the end of counting you know (laughs) it is finished it is done everyone is gathered in we don't need to count anymore but until then i think we do need to count and if you look at scripture it's very clear that there are good reasons for counting things and bad reasons for counting things. So, for example, David famously counts his army in Second Samuel and gets really told off for it because it's motivated, again, it's this, this thing about motivation, by anxiety, by pride, by failure to trust in God. But God orders his people to be counted all over the place. So in Exodus, in several times, you know, he counts his people and then he counts his people again because he cares for them. And the Hebrew word for to count when God counts is the same as the word as to lift the head. And there's just this wonderful image of God lifting the heads of his people one by one by one so he can know them and know who they are. And I wonder if it's something of that that we need to capture in the church. You know, are we just counting because we are prideful or worried or anxious about the state of the church? Or are we counting because we love people? And we want to see them come closer to Christ and we value them and see them and really see them. So, yes, I think we do need to count. Um, But again, motivation is the key thing. So is there such a thing as counting theologically then? There absolutely is, yes. And I think there are two theological doctrines that really challenge the way we count. 
So the first is this idea of eschatology. So the idea that, as the Bible describes in Revelation, at the end of time, Christ will return and will be king over all the earth and everything will be put right under his kingship. But until then, our task is unfinished. Until then, we can't know. You know, in order to measure something, you kind of need a goal. You need an end point. But our end point is eternal. So we will always live with this sense of provisionality. Mm. You know, you cannot really ultimately know what is effective because we have eternity in view. So I think that should probably take the pressure off somewhat our anxiety and feeling that we have to finish things Mm. and we have to get it all done and dusted before eternity because we won't. And so that's the first sort of doctrine, the doctrine of the return of Christ. The second one is the doctrine of grace. And we live in a world that says you get what's coming to you, you earn your rewards, you count everything, you test everything, everything must have criteria. I mean, you'll know this in the world of theological education, you know, there must be learning outcomes for everything and everything must be tested and measured. Grace says there is nothing we can do to earn God's love. There is no performance that we can make to make Jesus love us anymore. Jesus has done everything on the cross. So I think both of those doctrines just help us to temper, really, our motivations for counting and to think theologically. And one of the things you mentioned earlier, Emma, was about the culture in which we live where ambition is often linked to personal success. And you've kind of critiqued that from saying, actually, we should be concerned with kind of God's agenda, God's kingdom. So what does success look like, Mm. therefore, if we're going to pursue this what you describe as a biblical view of ambition. Is there any language of success that needs to be retained? And if so, how? Or is there something different that we need to look for? I deliberately use the language of success in the book because I think we shy away from it too quickly. And we probably do need to be using words like faithfulness and fruitfulness rather than success. But I deliberately try and stay with the word success because I think it forces us to think about what we're trying to do and how will we know if we've achieved it. And particularly as a church, I think that is quite important. I think we do need to know, well, what are we trying to do as a church? But, of course, the complicating factor in all of this is that right at the centre of our faith, I mean, literally the crux of our faith, (laughs) is the cross where, as I said, success and failure seem to go hand in hand. And I love the way it puts it in Philippians 4, where it says, Christ humbled himself to death on the cross, therefore God highly exalted him. So you see just in that one verse, the apparent failure and the exaltation. And I think we do need to get better in the church at holding those two things together, that failure is not the opposite to success. And sometimes failure can be the means towards success. We need to fail. We need to be able to try things and not get it right all the time. We need to learn from our mistakes. And that's the sort of success that we're after. So that's sort of hard-won, hard-learned success rather than quick and easy answers. There's the success that looks full of smiles and great Instagram photos. And is what you're saying, actually, success can sometimes look a bit grittier than that. It can, absolutely. And in the church, you know, I don't think we can put together numerical success, if you like, with health in the church. Those two things might be very different. I think it was Bonhoeffer writing to the church during the time of the mm. Nazi occupation okay. when uh, when the church looked very successful in Germany, mm, right. but actually was was rotten to the core. 
And so sometimes at the times when we might think the church is doing really well, actually it's doing really badly, and vice versa. Sometimes when the church is small and beleaguered and faithful and praying and persecuted, it might be at its most successful because it might be being most true to what it is called to be in Christ. And alongside success, you explore this word excellence, which I think is, again, from Philippians. What do you think is distinctively Christian about that? And how can that help us perhaps be something that we're ambitious for? I think, again, we need to, this is the linguist in me coming out again, we need to be careful about what we mean by excellence. So quite often when we hear excellence used in common terms, it means in comparison to something else. So here in the university context, you will have the teaching excellence framework. And that is about measuring how this university or another university is doing in relation to each other. On TripAdvisor, you know, you have a um, certificate of excellence, which shows you're better than that hotel or that place down the road. I think where excellence is used in scripture, the Greek word arete, which is about inherent excellence. So it was a word that Aristotle developed a concept of, which is not comparative excellence. It's about how do you achieve and be the best that you can be in yourself, never mind how you are in comparison to something else. So, you know, a squirrel is great as a squirrel, not because it's not a horse or a horse is not better than a fish. These are not categories that you would compare with each other. A horse is a great horse and a squirrel is a great squirrel. So I wonder if for Christians, and particularly for Christian leaders, it's this idea of being faithful, being fruitful, being the best that you can be as you and in the calling that you have without comparing yourself to the church down the road, the website that that church has, the numbers on that church alpha course. You know, it could be really difficult as church leaders, I think, just to be content, to be satisfied. Uh, another concept that Paul uses in who you are rather than judging yourself in relation to other criteria or other people. Emma, you've sketched out the impact that thinking theologically about ambition has, both in terms of the vision that we might have for God's kingdom, the way we might kind of look at counting differently, success differently, excellence differently. For people listening to this podcast who may be in a leadership role within the church, outside the church, what are the kind of practical heart questions that people can be asking themselves that might help them think theologically and helpfully about ambition in their daily lives? Any tips you'd want to give? I think the first thing I would say is don't be afraid to be ambitious. Maybe even use that word with qualification. Don't be afraid to be passionate. Don't be afraid to go for it. Don't be shy. Don't hide away. And I think I would say that particularly, if I might say, to female leaders who sometimes struggle a bit more than some men do to just step up and to not shrink into the shadows and to fully occupy that calling that God has given you. So that's the first thing I would say is be in the right sense ambitious. I think the second thing I would say is don't be afraid of failure. Try things. Failure is not the end. And indeed, we might want to think, what do we mean by failure? I mean, so much of what we now know and how we learn as a people and as communities comes through failure. I think we do need to look at what type of failure we're talking about. And sometimes I think we need to get a little bit better at not just talking about success or failure, but talking about types of success and types of failure. Some types of failure 
are very much to be avoided and hurt and damage other people. But I think where there is a learning process associated with a failure, then don't be afraid to go there. I think I would say do the inner work of humility, you know, do the work of character formation. There are no shortcuts. The more ambitious we are, the more we need to be spending time on our knees, time in accountability with other people, not the kind of solo heroic leader, but working together with others, being in community and go for it. Be ambitious for the kingdom. And can I ask you, as somebody who is a bishop in the Church of England, I imagine writing this book, which I know started when you were principal of a theological college and then was published when you were a bishop. Can you give us some insights into how you perhaps do those things that you've mentioned and advised in others, perhaps particularly about what it means to work on character and to be on your knees and mm. as well as what it is to step up and to, to be ambitious in that right sense mm. of the word? As you say, I was writing the book during the going through the process of being appointed as a bishop and it really made me reflect on my motivation for what I was doing. You know, did I want to be a bishop? because I wanted the status and the silly hat. Nobody wants the silly hat. Or did I want to be a bishop because I felt God was calling me to make a difference in a diocese and in the Church of England and to be guardian of the faith of the apostles and to proclaim Christ crucified? The latter. But I need to check myself that it always is the latter. And sort of daily I need to say to myself, what am I doing this for? And even just sort of challenging some of the little ways that we do things. So, you know, people put bishops on a bit of a funny pedestal and they, they do weird things like save you parking spaces when you turn up for things. And, you know, I think if I'm always challenging myself, do I need this? Do I need to send a different kind of message here? Do I need to talk differently about myself or about other people? Are there little symbolic things I can do day by day that just say, I'm coming to you from a place of humility and weakness and failure while stepping into what God has called me to do. So I think it really has challenged me to think about what I do and what I say and how I am day by day and to really work on those places of accountability. So, you know, prayer groups, uh, I meet with a, with a few other groups of people actually who can hold me accountable and say, Emma, do you realise you're becoming a bit weird? and say, don't do this or don't do that. And, you know, let's just be normal together. And prayer, I mean, you know, there is no shortcut for just spending that time before God who searches my heart and knows all my motivations, both the good ones and the ones I'd rather keep hidden from others. So it is just allowing the light of God to shine on some of that. I mean, this we're in Lent at the moment, and it is such a good opportunity to do this work of character, because there really is that prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. And so that's what I try and do. I don't always succeed, but that's what I try and do. Emma Einstein, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you, Philip. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.